Amen. Amen. Good to see all of you tonight. God is at work. God is at work. We praise Him for it. Revelation chapter 10. While you're turning there as a combination of the Word of God and worship, David writes in Psalm 119, seven times a day I praise you for your Word. Seven times a day, David says, I praise you for your Word. By the way, as I was, you know, I'm doing a blog I'm doing a psalm each week, a blog on, on a psalm each week. So I'm, I'm working ahead. So I get to Psalm 119. There's 176 verses. I'm like, I ain't blogging on this. I can't. So I did a general, obviously, real general overview of Psalm 119. It'll be coming out in a couple of weeks as we continue to go through the book of Psalms as well. Revelation 10 is all about authority. And when you think of the word authority in a biblical way, I want you to think of it in these terms. Right and might. It's both. It is the right and the might that God gives in any situation. And we talked about the will of God on Sunday and how a person who's walking in the will of God walks in the strength of their Creator, the Maker of heaven and earth. And we're going to see that again tonight, where God is going to be, in a sense, exercising His authority here in the book of Revelation. And He's going to also, in a sense, be doing it through two individuals, this mighty angel that we're going to be introduced to and John himself, the revelator, the one who's writing down the things that God reveals in this book. Now what we've come to now in chapter 10, all the way through chapter 11 and verse 14, is sort of another parenthesis in the book of Revelation, where we sort of are able to take a breath from what we experienced on earth with all the judgments that we saw last week. And now we go back a little bit and we get a little bit of a parenthesis, a little bit of a breath, a little bit of a break. And we're now going to see some background that's happening here about what, again, is God doing and what's the purposes of God in all of this. And really, there's only three characters tonight in Revelation 10. There's this mighty angel that we're going to see tonight. There's obviously John that we're going to see tonight. And there's also, I believe, the voice of God that we're going to see in Revelation chapter 10 tonight. And again, what I want you to see tonight is I want you to see Revelation chapter 10 with the backdrop of authority, God's authority. And as we move to the end of this passage tonight, I want to go to a couple other scripture passages that I hope and pray will be a great encouragement to you when it comes to the authority that God has granted to us. And are we walking in His right and might every day like we could be, like we should be, as his children. So I want you to think about it along those lines tonight. So notice in Revelation 10, John says, I saw another powerful angel, a strong, mighty angel. Now again, angels are all powerful, but just as there are different ranks and hierarchy within the angelic kingdom, there's certainly some angels that are just stronger and mightier than others. You know, again, I go back to Michael, the archangel. And others. So, 
whoever John saw here, this is another powerful angel. And he descends from heaven. He's wrapped in a cloud. Every time you see a cloud in the Bible, it is usually attending the divine presence. He's just come from, obviously, the place of worship, heaven, and the divine presence of God. And he has a rainbow above his head. Obviously, this rainbow takes us all the way back to the book of Genesis and reminds us of God's covenant faithfulness and assurance. That's what he put the rainbow there for after the flood. It was a sign of God's covenant faithfulness and assurance. And again, it is a reminder again, we're going through Revelation as a book of worship to God. And one of the things we should always be worshiping God for is His covenant faithfulness and assurance that He gives us. Every day. Every day. Now I want you to see this. Did you note here where the rainbow is? This is why... Painters throughout history have put halos over top of angels. It's Revelation chapter 10. When the Bible says there was a rainbow above the angel's head, that's where they got the idea for the halo. You see. See what you get when you come out on Tuesday night? I'm just just teasing. But no, seriously, that's... There is no other reference in the Bible to any kind of, like, thing above an angel's head. His face, this powerful angel, was like the sun. He he had a radiant countenance. Well, no wonder he came from the presence of God. And we know with Moses and others, when a person puts themselves in the presence of God, and even for you and I, who may not physically be able to be in the presence of God, but when you and I can spend time in God's presence, guess what it's going to do? It's going to change our countenance. We're going to come away from our time with God, hopefully with a different expression and a different attitude and a different disposition and a different countenance, if you will. And so did the angel. He came away and his face was like the light rays of the sun. And his legs were like pillars or columns of fire. And this speaks of judgment. And we're going to see here now in verse 2. He held in his hand a little scroll that was previously opened. This is not the same scroll that we were introduced to in chapter 5. This is a much smaller scroll. In fact, it's even a different Greek word than the word for scroll back in chapter 5. It's giving us a differentiation here between these two books. And I think what this little scroll is, is simply, again, the authority and instructions that God has given this mighty angel that was previously opened and which he is now carrying out. And he put his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. That's a pretty big angel. And this is, again, demonstrating authority over something. In a sense, by doing this, he is claiming the earth and the sea for God. As well as, he's expressing the purpose to take possession of both. In a sense, what is happening in the book of Revelation is, God the Creator is repossessing what is actually His because He created it. You see. And that's what He's doing. In fact, this is such a big theme in the book of or in Revelation chapter 10, that I want you to notice that John uses this phrase of this mighty angel standing with one foot on the land and one foot on the sea three times in this chapter. 
He does it in verse 2. Notice he does it again in verse 5. And notice he does it again in verse 8. Three times he makes reference to this angel standing with one foot on the sea, one foot on the land. God has authority over that which he created and he is now taking possession of it, you see. And that's what the angel here is doing. Then verse 3, he shouted, he cried out in a loud voice like a lion roaring. He's awakening these people of earth to the impending judgment of God. And when he shouted, the seven thunders sounded their voices. Literally, they roared. God roared. Now, what are these seven thunders? I don't think that these are separate voices. The only reference to anything like this that I can find in the Word of God, keep your finger in Revelation, and go back to Psalm 29 tonight. I want to show you this. This is, this is pretty cool. Psalm 29. And in Psalm 29, the Bible attributes uh, the voice of God as a thunderous shout, if you will. And David is writing Psalm 29, and the voice of God with a sevenfold sort of aspect of his great voice. And it's in conjunction with his judgment as he reigns over the judgment of the flood in Noah's day. Which is very interesting considering now again, we read in Revelation about, in a sense, his judgment coming. And the Bible makes reference to these thunders, these seven thunders. Now, to give this context... First of all, go to verse 10 of, of Psalm 29, and you will see there it says, The Lord sits enthroned over the engulfing waters. At least that's the Net Bible translation. Yours may be something different. But the point is this. The only other time those words are used in the Bible is in Genesis 6-11 through 11 that describes the great flood. So that's why I'm saying that this psalm that David has written is all in conjunction with the Lord reigning as judge at the time of the flood. So now notice these thunders, if you will, of his voice, beginning in verse 3. The Lord's shout. The reason why the Net Bible translates voice, and you could use the word voice, that's certainly not a wrong translation. The reason why the Net Bible uses the word shout is because the word also can mean to cry aloud. A shout, you see. The Lord's shout is heard over the water. The majestic God thunders. The Lord appears over the surging water. The Lord's shout is powerful. The Lord's shout is majestic. The Lord's shout breaks the cedars. The Lord shatters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young ox. The Lord's shout strikes with flaming fire. The Lord's shout shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The Lord's shout bends the large trees and strips the leaves from the forest. Everyone in his temple, temple says, majestic. The seven thunderous voices of God. And I believe that then what we are seeing in Revelation chapter 10, 
is again the seven thunders, if you will, of God's voice. And isn't it interesting that again, to have a balanced view of even God and of his voice, you have to take in all of scripture because there is certainly the scriptural teaching that sometimes God speaks to us in a still small voice. But sometimes God thunders when he speaks. There's both. There's both. When God wants to get our attention, he knows exactly what to do to get our undivided attention. And he may go from that still small voice to that voice that thunders. So back to Revelation chapter 10. After the seven thunders sound their voices, the Bible says, when the seven thunders, verse 4, spoke, I was preparing to write, which is exactly what God instructed him to do at the beginning of Revelation. John, I want you to write the things that you're experiencing. But here, God holds him off. And says, I don't want you to write what you heard these seven thunders say. Seal it up. Keep silence. Keep it secret. Omit the utterance of the seven thunders. Do not write it down. We don't know why. We have no clue. Will we one day know what the seven thunders said? I don't know. But for whatever reason, John is told not to write it down. Then again, verse 5, I saw an angel, this angel, standing, still standing on the sea and on the land. He hasn't moved. And he lifts up his right hand like he was taking an oath to heaven. And he swore, he affirmed, he promised by the one who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, and earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it. Notice here again several things about our God. First of all, again, if God said it, we can rely on it. We can depend upon it. He is swearing, if you will, by God. It reminds us of what the writer of Hebrews says when he said God could swear by no one greater than himself. God cannot lie. Everything God has said will happen just as he said it would. In fact, it's so certain that in God's mind, it's as if it's already happened. That's how great we can take the promises of God. My friends, that we can believe those promises of God as if they've already happened. Because they will. If God said they will, this is exactly what will happen. And so he's reminding us here about, again, just the reliability of God. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says we can have such an anchor in our lives. Because of God's covenant faithfulness and being true to His Word. Then notice He's eternal. He's the one who lives forever and ever. God alone. No beginning, no end. Always been, always will be. And then He formed and shaped heaven and what is in it, and He formed and shaped earth and what is in it. And again, He's repossessing what He created. And the angel goes on to say, there will be no more delay. The time has come. God isn't going to give man one more day. That intervention is coming. All those who rebel against God's authority will be wiped aside and God will set up his kingdom on this earth. There's no more delay. Now, I want to point this out at this point because this, this is important for us. 
This emphasizes at the end of verse 6 God's timing to fulfill His promises. And why is that important? Because God's predictions are sure, but they are for an appointed time. That's important for us to remember. God's predictions, His promises are always sure, but they may be for an appointed time. You see. And it will be in God's timing, not in ours, that God fulfills the promises and predictions and prophecies that He's given here. Which is exactly what's happening right now. The time of it all is also in God's hand. He has the authority. You see. He holds the key. So in the days, verse 7, when the seventh angel is about to blow his trumpet, the mystery of God is completed just as he proclaimed to his servants the prophets. What mystery? Well, first of all, this word mystery talks about the fact that you and I as human beings wouldn't even know it if God had not revealed it. And so we are reminded just the great privilege we have of how much God has revealed. You know, we always maybe get a little bent out of shape at what God hasn't revealed and hasn't told us. But what about all that God has revealed that we wouldn't know if God hadn't chose to reveal it to us? And that's why, just like Sunday's message about concentrating on what we know we should do rather than what we don't know yet... I think God would say to all of us, concentrate on what I have revealed. There's plenty there instead of what I haven't revealed for whatever reason, you see. And so we need to praise God and worship Him for all that He's revealed to us and remind ourselves how little would we know of anything if God had not chosen to reveal it to us, which is what is being pointed out here. And the mystery of God in this uh, passage, I think specifically is talking about the fact that that there was, in a sense, a delay, if you will, between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And there's been this couple thousand year parenthesis in human history. And God has allowed man to, to do, again, within his sovereignty, what man has done. And God has allowed within his sovereignty, Satan and some of the fallen angels to do what they have done. But within all of that, God in his greatness is still able to move everything in the universe towards the design that he's always predicted. See, that's how great God is, that that he can still grant angels and man free will, and yet his will can still be done. And there is no conflict with that. There's no contradiction. God is so great and so awesome that he can give his creation a free will and a choice and still get done exactly what he wants. That's the mystery of God. In fact, I don't want to take too much time, but I'll share this with you because some of you had questions about this after my message on Sunday because you sort of you know, usually growing up in church and even around the Bible, you know, you either have to be one or the other. 
You either have to be a person that believes in the sovereignty of God or the free will of man. You have to fall on one side or the other. And even back when I was in, in Bible college and stuff, I never, I never allowed myself to fall into any one of those camps. I just ne- was never comfortable with that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't allow myself to, to be pigeonholed. Because I believe that the Bible clearly teaches both. And if you, if you hold directly, you know, just to one over the other, then there's many verses that's going to contradict that view. And I just can't land in a place where the Bible clearly contradicts that view. I've either got to find a way where it all fits, or I've got to keep studying and digging until I do find a way for it to fit. Because God's not going to contradict himself. So I want you to look at it this way. I've talked about this before when I've done some talks on the sovereignty of God and on Calvinism and Arminianism. I'm just going to briefly talk about this. So the angels and us, in some ways, are similar. At one point in history, God gave, for instance, the angels a choice. Are you going to rebel with Lucifer, or are you going to stay and worship and serve me? What's it going to be? Once those angels made that choice, they were locked into that choice for all of eternity. A demon now can't go, well, God, I think I want to change my mind. And, you know, no. Nor can now a good angel go, I think I want to go and, you know, become a demon and and follow Lucifer. Can't happen. They had a choice. Once they made that choice, they were locked in. Similar to a human being. God gives every human being a choice. Accept Christ reject Christ. Once you ultimately make that choice, then you are locked into that choice for all of eternity. And that choice cannot change. So in a sense, we get to choose, and and I use cruise ships. I know. Don't ask me why. I have no idea. So you get to choose what cruise ship you're you're, you're on. The one cruise ship is eventually going to dock in heaven one day. The other cruise ship is going to dock in a lake of fire one day. And with that, you and I, we have no choice in that matter. The choice we have is what ship do we get on. And then once you and I get on that ship, say Christians, okay? So so this big ship is eventually going to dock in heaven one day. So that means there's all these Christians on that ship, that great cruise ship. But on that great cruise ship, there's all kinds of different things to do and not to do. So see, within, within God's sovereignty of saying that ship is going to get there, and he can say that, there still within that is a lot of free will for Christians to obey, to disobey, to gain reward, to lose reward, to invest in eternity, to not invest in eternity. But that ship, if you chose Christ, is one day going to dock in heaven. Anyway, mystery of God. Let's go on. I could talk about these things all night. Verse 8, Then the voice I had heard from heaven began to speak to me again. And notice what the voice of God says to John. Now remember something. Let's remember who this angel is. This angel John's described as this strong, powerful angel, and his, he's got legs that are columns of fire, and, and his face is like the, the face of, of the rays of the sun, and he's got this great, booming voice. And God's voice tells John, I want you to go, and I want you to take the scroll out of that angel's hand. 
Oh no, I ain't doing that. No, no way. You see how big that angel is? No, that's not what he did, right? John obeyed. As intimidating as that powerful, mighty angel was, John, a mere human being, walks up to that angel and asks him for the scroll. How could he do that? Why did he do that? Because he was walking in the authority of God. Why did the angel come down from heaven and put one foot on the land and one foot on the sea and claim it? Because he did so in the authority that God granted to him. And that's why I said, we, when we are doing the will of God, we walk in the strength and power of our Creator, the Maker of heaven and earth. When we're doing the will of God, from God's perspective, we have His right and His might to carry out what He's asked us to do. It's not just the right to do it, it is the might to do it. In other words, look at it this way. When you and I are doing the will of God, God gives us permission to do it. Now, let's flip that around. If I'm not doing the will of God, then God didn't give me permission to do that. Therefore, God's not going to grant me the might to do it either. I'll do it in my own power. I'll scratch and claw somehow to do it, and I'll exhaust myself maybe to get it done. But the flip side of that is, here's the assurance. When you and I are doing the will of God, we not only have the right and permission from God to do it, the privilege to do it, because it's His will, we will be given His might and His strength to do it, because it's His will. And He always empowers those that He calls to do His will, you see. Always. Always strengthens His servants to do his will. That's why the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament would come upon his servants so that he could empower them to do his will. That's why God gives us the permanent indwelling of his Holy Spirit. So when we obey his will, we can be empowered and strengthened to do it. So John walks up to this mighty angel and he went up and asked in verse 9, give me the little scroll. And he said to me, I want you to take the scroll and eat it. I want you to consume it. I want you to devour it. I want you to swallow it. In a sense, what he's saying is, I want you to digest the contents of this book. It's a picture for us of what God really, I think, wants all of his people to do with his word, which is illustrated here by this little scroll. He wants us to consume it. He wants us to devour it. He wants us to digest his word. But as we do that, you'll notice that there's a dual effect, a dual nature of God's word, even to us. Because he goes on to say, when you take this scroll and eat it, it's going to make your stomach bitter or irritated. It will be sweet as honey in your mouth. So I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and I ate it. I totally consumed it. I totally devoured it. And it did taste as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I ate it and started to digest it, my stomach became bitter. In other words, it turned my stomach. It was hard on my stomach, as we say. And then he told me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings or political leaders. Why does God's word have this effect on us when we truly digest it? 
Because when we are really understanding and digesting God's Word, it does have a dual effect on us, even as believers. For us, who know Christ, and who know what fate awaits us, and the glory that awaits us, and all of the wonderful promises and all that, it's sweet to us when we first taste it. But then when we get into a book like Revelation and others that prophesy about the destiny and the doom of those who don't know Christ, when we start to really understand what awaits them, doesn't it's not all sweet. There's a, there's a, there's a irritation, there's a, a bitterness involved with that, you see. It's not all great. Because we also understand, again, what's going to come to those that reject Christ. And so we see that, you see. And, and we all, I think, you know, for us, when we read and digest the Word of God and take it for ourselves, it can be so sweet. Nothing sweeter. But then when we begin to think about maybe family or friends or whatever that's on the other side of this, some of those same passages or maybe different passages, oh my goodness, our, our heart, we grieve. We can get literally, you know, pain when we begin to think about what awaits them. So what's a blessing for us? isn't such a blessing for everyone. It's the same concept that Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians when he says, as Christians we should be a savor of God everywhere we go. He said, now to some, we're going to be the aroma of life. To others, we're going to be the aroma or stench of death. You see? And that's the way it is. It's that dual nature of the Word of God. That's why, for instance... You, you, you're walking with God and you're walking in His peace and joy and you're walking and filled with the Spirit and you get around certain people, hopefully, probably other Christians, and your fellowship and everything is just going to be sweet and you're going to click and you're going to connect and you're going to know there's a bond there and there's just that instant connection with the people who are walking with you as we all walk with God together. But you can be the same person filled with the Spirit and all of a sudden you get in another crowd and all of a sudden the dynamic totally changes. Because their heart isn't with God. Their heart isn't right with God. And all of a sudden that, that freedom that you had with your brothers and sisters and, and the joy that you all could share and all of that, all of a sudden there's a different dynamic at play. Just because of the different crowd that you're in. You see. And so... This is what the Word of God and even the people of God can do. It just depends on where we're at and who we're with. It's a dual thing. But here's what I want to leave you with today. We have seen here tonight that this angel was sent by God with God's authority to basically stand on the earth and the sea as a precursor to God repossessing what is His because He created it. And then we saw John, a mere human being, 
who had been caught up into the Spirit, willing to go in front of this mighty angel and ask him for this scroll. And how could he do that? Why could he do that? Because again, he knew that this direction was coming from God. This was God's will. Therefore, he could walk up to that angel and he could ask him for that scroll because he was walking in the authority, in the right and the might of God. Folks, you can go through the Word of God and you can start looking at story after story after story from the Bible and you can start applying this principle from Revelation 10 tonight to almost every biblical story on one side or the other. I'll just give you a couple. David Goliath. How could David, the shepherd boy, go out to meet the giant Goliath? Because he knew that he was doing the will of God, that as he faced that giant, he was in the right and might with God. And that he was going in the right and might of God. And that's why he could face his giant. Why did Esther, how could Esther, this young gal, face the king? Because she knew in her heart she was doing the will of God. And she was taking the right and might of God with her as she approached the king. Over and over again, story after story, you will either see people who will shrink back and lack the confidence and courage to do God's will, and they won't step forward even though God has given them permission to do so. Book of Joshua, where God says, Go take possession of this land. I will be with you. Be strong and courageous. I am with you. This is my will. Just go possess it. And they possessed a little bit of it, but not all of it. Or you'll see other times where the people of God rise up. And because God said for them to do it, they obeyed. They went and His right and His might and His authority And they saw unbelievable things happen. This is the difference between the church in the book of Acts and the church today. It's not that God's program has changed. It's that the people of God aren't willing to stand up in the right and might of God and claim what is ours through God. Let me give you an example of that. I've got almost 10 minutes. We can do this. I want you to go back to the book of Luke. First of all, sorry, I'm just getting, just getting wound up here. Luke chapter 4. I want you to see this first of all. Because sometimes we miss the very important things because we just, you know, sometimes don't slow down enough. Luke chapter 4, beginning at verse 5. This is in the middle of, of, of the devil's temptation of Jesus. And the reason I want to show you this is I don't want you to miss the fact of what's taking place here and why God is repossessing that which He created. Because the Bible clearly says, and the devil even knows, that the world as it is now is not in a sense... Yes, God is in control because He's always sovereign. But the kingdoms of this world... Oh my goodness, they're the devils. They're, they're, the kingdoms that they are, the nations of this world, they're not doing God's will for the most part. They're doing the devil's will for the most part. And that's exactly what we see here in Luke 4, 5. Then the devil led him up to a high place, showed him in a flash all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, to Jesus, to you I will grant this whole realm and the glory that goes along with it. For it, notice, has been relinquished to me. Who relinquished the kingdoms of the world to Satan? We did. Adam and Eve did. 
See, again, it was always God's plan for man to rule and reign on this earth, which is what God's going to give us another opportunity to do because he's restoring things. Not just saving things, restoring things. Doesn't just save us, he restores us as his people. But the kingdoms now are no longer ours. We gave them up through the fall. And Satan swooped in and took the kingdoms of this world. That's why he could offer them to Jesus at the temptation. And I can give it to anyone I wish. So if you will worship me, all this will be yours. Jesus answered and said, it is written, you are to worship the Lord God and serve only him. He wasn't concerned about these earthly kingdoms. They're temporary. They're made of stone. They're not eternal There's nothing of lasting eternal worth about the kingdoms of this world. This is all man's doing and Satan's doing. He wants no part of it. But can I tell you, my friends, in connection with the book of Revelation, that one day Satan is going to find his instrument who is going to take him up on this. When he shows this one man, the Antichrist, the kingdoms of this world, and says, if you bow down to me and worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. The man who will become the Antichrist is right there to say, I'll do what Jesus wasn't willing to do. Give me this world and let me rule over it. And that's exactly why the Antichrist is going to be satanically empowered Because he took Satan up on his offer. Satan's always looking for instruments, just like God's looking for instruments instruments to work through. Satan is as well. So let's go to Matthew. Matthew chapter 28. The Great Commission. I want you to think about the authority, the right and might that God has granted to us as his people. The very last words of Jesus to his followers. He says in Matthew 28, verse 18. Then Jesus came and said to them, All authority, without exception, all right in might, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, in other words, connecting with what he just said. Therefore, because I have all authority, I'm now going to send you in my authority and as you are going and as you are making disciples of all nations you are going in my authority you don't have to back down from making disciples because every time we are out there making disciples we are going in the authority that Jesus has already granted to us we don't have to guess now God is is this something you want me to do he's already told us as you're going you're going in my authority Every time you're making disciples, every time you're teaching and instructing people to be fully committed followers of Jesus Christ, you are going in my authority. And by the way, you'll notice here, the Great Commission isn't go and make converts. It's not just go and get people saved, which is what a lot of churches focus on today. Well, that's not what the Great Commission is. It's not just go and get people saved, it's go and make disciples. And we've already seen in many messages that there's a difference between someone who's saved and someone who's a fully committed follower or disciple of Jesus Christ. That's the goal, you see. Not just to get people saved, but to get them to become disciples. 
And Jesus says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. You have my authority every time you baptize. I don't baptize people here at the Oasis in my own authority. I baptize people when I baptize them in the authority that has been entrusted to me by Jesus himself. He said, do it. So we do it. We baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then, every time we are teaching them to obey everything that Jesus commanded, we are also doing that in his authority. And then he says, oh, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm with you. My authority is with you. Every time you go and start making disciples, you don't have to worry about it. The problem is that today, just like, say, in the book of Joshua, we've got people of God who who are lacking the courage and the boldness and the confidence to just begin living and stepping out in the authority that they've already been given and start living the Christian life and doing what God has already commanded us to do and what his will is. My friends, when we start going out and by faith just doing what God has already instructed us to do and what we know His will is, God will work. And God's Word will work. Because He's already given us the authority to do it. One other passage, the book of Colossians. I'll end with this. Because 8 o'clock is coming quickly. And I don't want God to say, there's no more time. So... Colossians chapter 2. Look at verse 9 and 10. Paul says, In Him, Jesus, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. Now don't miss verse 10. And you, that means you and me, if we're Christians, if we have Christ, you have been filled with, In him, literally, completely filled. You could also even use the word fulfilled in him. In other words, there's nothing lacking. Remember the message several weeks ago where I said sometimes we as Christians really miss it because we think we've got Jesus and yet there's still something missing? And what Paul's really saying here is, you got Jesus, you've got nothing missing. You've got everything you need. You are completely filled up in Jesus because Jesus is the, the ruler, the creator, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. You have him. What more? What else do you need? And then notice what he says and how he leaves it in verse 10. Who is the head? The one who is over every ruler and authority. He's over all authority. He is the authority. And he has told his people, I want you to live in my authority. Now, folks, please don't misunderstand. What I am encouraging here tonight is not for us as Christians to go out and and be obnoxious, I, I guess would be a good word, about our faith. That's not what I'm saying. The Bible clearly teaches walk in wisdom towards outsiders. But I guess what I am saying is I think too too few times in our lives as Christians, we're not living every day in the confidence, in the courage, in the right and might that God has already given us. It's almost like you know, we're almost these timid, you know, afraid and, and, and backward. And it's like, well, you know, I, I, I don't want to say anything or I don't want to do anything type of thing. And it's like, 
you know, certainly there's a timing thing and certainly there's a time to say and a time not to say to everything. There's a season, but I get the impression from many churches and from many believers today that we are becoming very intimidated in our faith and that we are needing to ask God to give us the courage and the confidence and the boldness as ones who are supposed to live in His authority, an authority that is above all other authority. He has the right and might of the universe. And He has granted us as His people that authority to go and make disciples, to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, to teach people to observe everything that He commanded. And so as we go out and we work for God and we serve and we minister and we do all that, never forget that you're not doing that on your own. Every time you and I are out there for God and putting ourselves out there for God, He goes with us. He says, I will be with you to the end of the age. And we go with Him with His presence and with His authority behind us. We need us to rise up and become like David, become like Esther, and become like other Daniels and people in the Bible who were willing to stand up in the authority that they had been granted in God and take possession of what was rightfully theirs and what God gave them to do and not back down from it. And so I'm hoping tonight that this message from Revelation 10 will inspire you and encourage you that as you're out there, as hard as it is sometimes to be out there in the world and trying to live for Christ and witness for Christ and all that, never forget this. You are never alone. Jesus is with you every step of the way. And you are doing this in His authority. You're not doing it in your own. You are going in His right and might. Just keep standing up for Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you for granting us the privilege of being able to do what you've asked us to do and that you give us the permission, the right, and the power and the might to do it. God, help us to live that way. Help us not to back down from what you've called us to do and to be. Help us to get so zeroed in on your will that, Lord, we understand that we can walk every day if we're doing Your will in the strength of our Creator, the Maker of heaven and earth. And that You go with us as we do it. God, inspire us tonight. Strengthen Your people tonight through this message. Help us to be strong in You so that we can stand up for You in the world in which we live. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys, for being here. We'll see you next week.